Seth Godin is one of the biggest names in business marketing. And let's face it, many entrepreneurs would love to benefit from working really closely with him. So what is it like to work so closely with Seth Godin? It can be like getting punched in the face over and over <laughs> and feeling like you're just stumbling forward, right? Because you're going so fast and, and using that forward momentum to hurl yourself forward, if you will. Hi, and welcome to Make Your Own Rules, the Mavericks Unlimited podcast. I'm your host, Chris Leroy, and this is the place to become your best self, do work you love, and live life on your terms. On this podcast, we speak to Mavericks who inspire us. We aim to get the insight and wisdom from their story to give you the clarity, courage, and confidence that you need to make your own rules. And whatever flavor of Maverick you are, whether you're a change maker, a leader, or an entrepreneur, sooner or later, you're going to have to sell people your ideas and bring them on the journey with you. And that's exactly what marketeer Wes Ko is a master of. She understands that selling isn't a dirty word, but really is about deep empathy, walking a mile in another person's shoes, and really helping that person to feel seen and heard. She helps organizations launch products, helps leaders to run change programs, and entrepreneurs to really understand their audience. Wes has also learned from the best, having worked really closely with Seth Godin as the exec director on his Alt MBA program. In this conversation, we do get into some tools and techniques of persuasion, but we go rather deeper into how to really hone your empathy, build your confidence, and how to bring your loved ones along with you on your maverick journey. So let's jump in and see what Wes had to say. So tell us, uh, so you know, just so the mavericks can understand who you are and what you're about, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I've been in marketing for over 10 years now and done a ton of different product launches for big organizations like L'Oreal, The Gap, and startups like Flight that was um, an ad tech startup funded by Sequoia. And then most recently, I was working with Seth Godin in New York for the past three years, helping to launch his Alt-MBA school from scratch and grew it to over 500 cities in 45 countries. Grew the team from being the first um, founding member to over 40 employees. Um, and it was an incredible experience. And I think the, the biggest thing that I learned from working with Seth was to draw a bigger box for myself. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, let, let's dive into that straight away. Tell us about what that looked like for you in terms of drawing a bigger box. I've always been very driven in my career always wanting to go faster, wanting to push myself, um, throw my you know, name in the ring for different opportunities. Um, and, you know, a couple years ago, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to apply to work with Seth. And I really didn't think that anything would come from it. Um, I basically had seen his blog post saying, Hey, I'm looking for someone to help me, um, think of what to do next and really help, um, define the direction of, um, a lot of where my content is going and, and how to make more interactive experiences now that people are not reading as much. You know, he had 18 wow. best-selling books, but attention spans are like goldfish now and there's a million tabs open on your Chrome and Safari um, and people were just not uh, reading as much. So how do you create content that reaches people deeply but is more interactive? Mm. So I joined on to work on that and eventually what came out of that was the Alt MBA. Um, but, but going back to the topic of, of drawing a bigger box, um, you know, it's, it's really about setting, setting expectations for yourself. Mm. And Seth had told me that, you know, you've gotten to where you are because you keep drawing a bigger box for yourself and then you keep filling it. 
And then you pat yourself on the back thinking, oh, I filled my box. I'm doing great. But your box should really be 10 times bigger than what it is. And you shouldn't be able to fill it so easily. And that was just a huge moment where, um, where I just stopped and thought, you're absolutely right. And it's one of those things where, you know, now I'm so um, driven and, and inspired to help other people see that if you're filling your box and feeling like, oh, I'm going, I'm going pretty fast, um, there's so many ways that you can be going faster, making a bigger impact, and leaning into that discomfort and tension of knowing that your box should be bigger and you should be doing work that's that um, that is even even bigger than what you imagine. Wow, what an amazing lesson! Because let's face it, most of us are far more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. And I think one of my mentors once said, "You know, you, the 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 limit of your belief um, stops way before the limit of your ability," which I think is you know very very kin to what you're saying. So. You're in, you're in this new world now, kind of post-MBA, that kind of stuff. Just, just tell it just for a second, because I'm sure people will be curious. What was it like working with Seth? It was, it was so many things all bundled into one. Um, it's, it's hard to explain because, you know, Mike Hork and I talk about it being like being a knife being sharpened. So, okay, wow. That's so a- as you're being sharpened, you're the knife, you know, you're being sharpened, it's uncomfortable right? It's, it's painful. It's, you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. You're doing a lot of things that you, um, you didn't know you were capable of, um, and leading projects that, that you thought you would lead 10 years from now. So as a knife being sharpened, it can be like getting punched in the face over and over <laughs> and feeling like you're just stumbling forward, right? Cause you're going so fast. It's not like one secure foot in front of the other. It's more like just stumbling and running forward, and, and using that forward momentum to, to hurl yourself forward, if you will. Yeah. Um, and the beauty of that is that coming out of that experience, those three years were, I want to say, 10 to 15 years worth of, of insights, wisdom, experiences um, shoved into this really, really um, intense sprint. So, wow. so I feel like a knife. That, w- that had just been sharpened, you know, working 10 feet away from Seth. And, and I've come out of the other side, um, a much stronger leader, a much sharper thinker. And, you know, that's yeah. something that, that I teach my team as well. And all of my clients is that, that no lazy thinking, there's no lazy thinking allowed. We have to think rigorously about how something will work. Who is it for? What is it for? What is the story that the pricing is telling about this product? Why would someone want to tell someone else about this idea? And all of those questions are really questions that you should be asking yourself before launching something. And not only stopping by asking the question, but really going a step further and filling in the blanks with your hypotheses of mm. how you should answer that question. It's not enough to just posit the question and feel like, oh, I did, I did great. I asked a provocative question. The next step really is in... Um, and trying to answer that question. And you might be wrong in answering that question, which is why I think so many of us will stop at, you know, the question asking part. Um, (laughs) But, but by making that assertion, that hypothesis, that thesis of, I think things are going to go this way, or, you know, I think by stealing from these three different ideas and, and mushing it together and making it our own thing, we can 
create something that's going to be shareable, really putting together your unique point of view is is the biggest contribution that you can make to any project, to any group, to any piece of work. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. So this is, this is what you're bringing forth with you into, into the new world of Where's KO, as it were. And I know that obviously your specialism is marketing. You've done a lot of product marketing, but I know you've also expanded this, this work and kind of sales skills and all that into the world of change agents within organizations and outside of organizations. So Tell us a little bit about what you mean by sales skills, because obviously that word can be a little bit loaded for some people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sales skills to me are all about aligning incentives and helping other people see why your idea matters and why it's relevant to them. Mm. So it's not, it's not something that you do to someone. It's something that you do with them. Okay. So kind of a partnership kind of thing. Yes. And I think sales skills are so important for any leader, change agent, whether you're internal at a company or um, a freelancer or creative doing your own thing, the ability to, to feel inspired by your vision and then have that translate and, and create contagious enthusiasm about your vision is what, is, is what draws the line between you know, something that's just in your own head and stay small versus something that can spread into something bigger than yourself. And it all starts with, am I able to, um, to empathize with my audience, with my customer, my partner, my boss, my colleagues, mm. and help them see why this idea that, that I'm proposing is beneficial to everyone involved. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, ha, ha, where have you seen that kind of applied in an organization going through change, for example, and maybe outside of an organization? Sure. Within organizations, selling up, down, laterally is something that you should be doing every day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially when you think you shouldn't have to. That's oh, the kicker. Because when you think you shouldn't have to, it's usually because you think that your idea is so objectively good that everyone around you should see that without you having to sell it. And that's the most dangerous thing of all. That's usually when you have to sell it the most. Um, and a great example of that is, um, is if you're, let's say if you're a manager and you want to assign work to a direct report yep. and you think, okay, well, I'm this person's boss. They should just do what I say, right? right. Um, I shouldn't have to convince them. Um, and yet, whenever I was assigning anything to my direct reports, I always sold them on the idea. I always thought about why would this person want to do this? What is it that they've told me in the past that, um, that leads us to, to working on this together? Mm-hmm. And I'll give, a, I'll give an example. Um, there was some spreadsheet analysis and um, data cleaning that I wanted one of my direct reports to work on. And without much framing, it could be seen as kind of a slog. Right, right. And going right. through huge amounts of data and, um, you know, figuring out where there are duplicate entries. How are we? How do we gather, you know, certain entries that are missing from some fields versus others in order to do accurate analysis? Um, and instead of just telling my my direct report, hey, you should do this because you have to, we went into a meeting together, and I said, hey, um, 
you had said that you wanted to work on more analysis and that the data-driven part of marketing was really interesting to you. So data cleaning and making sure that you have an accurate data set is a really huge part of that. If you don't have that, no part of analysis built on top of that will lead to, to accurate insights. So here we have this chance to clean up our email list and a lot of our, um, our CRM, our database, and I wanted to see before assigning it to anyone else if you'd like to take on this project. Nice, nice. You almost make me want to do data cleansing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go too far, though. Um, so it was really about getting to know what was important to that specific person. Uh, yes, absolutely. In order to, to sell an idea, you really have to appeal to what that person cares about and what, what's in it for them. You know, usually we think about what's in it for us, but by going the extra step, deeply empathizing with the other person and saying, okay, what's in it for this person? We can position the idea in a way that really is beneficial for both parties, for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Totally. I totally get that. I totally understand that. So, I mean, kind of digging into that kind of deeper empathy part for a second, because I think, you know, for some people, empathy is a skill. For some people, they feel like it's a natural talent. And there's probably truth to both of those. But for those people that see it as a natural talent, I think, well, you know, I don't have a lot of empathy or, you know, I'm not as empathetic as I would like to be. How can that person kind of dig into that other person's world or into that group of people's world? What kind of thought processes can they go through or analysis or whatever else can they do to get into that person's world? Mm -hmm. How to be more empathetic is definitely a question worth asking ourselves over and over. It's funny because the people who think that they're empathetic enough and don't need to work on this anymore, (laughs) shockingly, sometimes are the ones that need to work on it the most. And I'm going to use myself as an example. I was one of those people. I thought, Mm. I'm pretty naturally empathetic. I can see other people's points of view. Um, I can see where they're coming from. And I don't need to to work on the skill as a priority vis-a-vis other things. And working with Seth was was one of the, the turning points for me because I learned that the level of empathetic that I was um, was a tenth or a twentieth of where I could be. Mm. And it really showed me that there was such a longer way to go. Um, and, and I think, you know, as someone who's gone through that personal journey, how to be more empathetic, one thing is, is realizing that whenever you feel offended or insulted or that you're getting the shorter end of the stick or someone is out to get you or you want to teach someone a lesson whenever that pettiness starts bubbling up inside of us that happens you know that definitely happens um you know whether it's someone giving you a look you know at the coffee shop mm-hmm. right or you know a sales sales associate giving you a look or um your coworker not being very receptive when you bring up an idea to them, whatever it might be, there are all kinds of things that can really trigger us to to that feeling of pettiness. Those are great opportunities to take a step back, check in with yourself, and think about how it's really not all about you. You know, my my brother will say this to me. He'll say, Wes, it's not all about you. Right. And it's an amazing reminder because we get stuck in our own heads and and it's just such a great reminder to think about, okay, what is this, what is this person's 
day going like? What are they dealing with? What is their worldview? How might they be thinking about themselves and not about me at all? Because everyone is just in their own worlds. So whatever, whatever thing that they did that I feel like was a personal insult was probably not about me at all. Right, right, right. And how can I extend myself and, and think about making an excuse for them even? If someone treated you poorly, it's, it's making an excuse for them. It's thinking about how can I be so empathetic to you that I'm going to explain why you were right to treat me poorly in this circumstance, which feels absolutely absurd. And five years ago, I would have said, that's absurd. I'm not going to do that. But that's really the radical extreme level that you have to go to, to put yourself in someone else's shoes and convince yourself of why what they did was actually right. And of course, there's no, there's no right or wrong objectively. It's, you know, it's all in our heads and it's all um, what we think is right or wrong. But having deep empathy, I think, is really about um, putting yourself in that other person's position and understanding their justification for doing whatever they did. Mm-hmm. That makes extreme sense to me. And um, let's face it, that, there's that old saying is there of, you know, walk a, ma- walk a mile in another person's shoes and you'll see and understand the world, which I think is absolutely right. And I think what I love about what you're saying is, you know, part of the reason why I think sales has become a quote unquote dirty word for many people is because as you say, it's done to, you know, a lot of bad salespeople do it to other people. Whereas you're coming from this place of, hang on, let me really deeply understand these this person, these people, and then see what I can do with that. So let's let's talk about the kind of the the being able to inspire enthusiasm about your idea. Um, you know, once you've kind of got that sense of empathy, how then do you generate that kind of that that conversation? And that kind of con- convincing, for want of a better word, that's probably entirely the wrong word. But um, let, let's kind of take it on a step, as it were. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'll use an example. Yeah. One is if you're working on a project or starting a company and you're pitching venture capitalists and you're getting doors slammed in your face one after the other, you might start to think that VCs are frauds. They talk, they take, they talk a big talk about how innovative they are, how they like funding new ideas, how they're on the cutting edge, the bleeding edge. Um, But the minute that you bring them an idea that is different than what every other startup looks like, they are slamming doors in your face. Mm. And again, you feel that pettiness coming up. You feel that resentment. Um, And, and on your, on your worst day, you might give into that pettiness and you might think that, um, that these VCs just don't see how brilliant you are. Yeah. And by casting that blame on them, you absolve yourself of personal responsibility for trying harder, thinking flexibly, and experimenting with what might actually capture their attention. Right. So that's you on your worst day. But on your best day, you're going that extra step to understand where they're coming from, and you're doing you're doing that extreme deep empathy and you're thinking, all right, if I were a VC, I can totally see why I would be, you know, why my startup would be considered a risk. You know, I, maybe I haven't started um, 
a company that has exited before or um, I haven't de-risked my idea enough. I haven't appealed to the kinds of companies that this VC likes to fund. And I haven't positioned myself in that way for them to easily accept me into their world. So whatever it might be, on your best day, if you're deeply empathizing, um, you're thinking about how can I how can I better understand the things this VC cares about? Consider them legitimate, mm-hmm. truly consider them legitimate, and then position my startup in what would fit their world, not just what I think is interesting. A lot of mm-hmm. a lot of us will will fixate on stuff that we think is interesting. So maybe you think that your technology is interesting because um, your software does X, Y, Z, but the competitors doesn't. And you keep talking about X, Y, Z because that's a differentiator. And the VC doesn't care about that. Maybe they care about ABC or some other aspect of your company, your business model, for example. Sell that. Talk about your business model. If that's what they care about, put X, Y, Z aside, whatever it is that you cared about, just park it, put it aside, and talk about whatever it is that the VC wants to talk about. Because at the end of the day, you both win if they see that your idea is good and they want to fund you. So don't try to to teach them a lesson by forcing them to care about XYZ when they so clearly told you by their actions and their behavior and their words, sorry, come back later, that they don't care about XYZ. The minute that we stop forcing people to care about the things we care about and instead take on the personal responsibility of changing our own behavior and our own framing and our own messaging to fit into what they already believe, our job gets a lot easier and they start to see us for who we are. And then, and it's just the path forward becomes a lot smoother for both people involved. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And what I almost hear there is as you're, if, if you don't get it right first time round, it's like, I think a lot of us kind of pull back or kind of get knocked by the notion of a no, but it's not necessarily a no forever, is it? It might be a no, not yet kind of thing. Or, uh, and if you would change your approach and kind of get into their world a little bit more and kind of approach with that, you may end up with a yes. Exactly. So we, we, we've kind of talked a lot about deep empathy here, which I really, I really love. Um, and that is that kind of thing of, you know, whether it is, as you say, a direct report, whether it's a, a customer, whether it's your partner, it's really starting off from that place of, um, you know, where are they coming from? It also strikes me there's something about taking them on a, on a journey, as it were or, you know, kind of taking Mm -hmm. them to that place where they are to where you would like them to be. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of what's worked in that kind of place? Sure. I love what you were saying about taking, taking people on a journey and taking them from where they are now to where they want to go and where they want to be. Um, There's so many techniques based in consumer behavior, marketing, sales, persuasion that are useful here as tools in your arsenal. You know, it's very hard to change people's minds. We all know that. Even when we say we want to change, we want to eat healthier, we want to start waking up at 6 a.m., even when we want to do something, it's still hard to make ourselves do it. So think about right. trying to make someone else do something, right? You you have so little control over over their behavior. 
and which is why I think it's so important to think about what are the things that actually impact people's behavior and change people's behavior. Mm. And a lot of those things have very little to do with logic and rational arguments and facts and, and an intellectual line of thinking. And it's more about how do people feel when they interact with you? Mm. It's about how do they, how do they tell themselves a different story when they get to go on a journey with you? And if you're able to appeal to people's worldviews and think about the ways that we care about the people around us and how we look to the people around us, that really, that really speeds up your ability to make change. So one great example of that is, um, is social proof. Mm. We make so many of our decisions based on what are people around us buying, watching, listening to, thinking about, reading. And social proof can come in the forms of testimonials. It can come in the form of case studies. If you're, if you're a consultant, um, if you're a restaurant, it's a long line out the door or positive reviews on Yelp. Um, if you are interviewing for a job, social proof is a lot of times the companies you used to work for and the school that you went to. And all of these things are ways that we use to contextualize and judge each other, for lack of a better word, about, okay, is this person a safe investment? Oh, if Google hired them, if Facebook hired them before, they must be someone who is at least decently smart. Right? Or if there's a huge line out the door of this restaurant, it must be at least decent. Yeah. Because we don't want to make the mistake of picking wrong. We don't want to spend our money and feel buyer's remorse about it. So all of these things aren't necessarily logical because you know, we shouldn't be judging restaurants necessarily by, by whether their marketing is great. Right? And if right, they've right, spent right. money on ads that, that bring people um, to, to their door. Um, and yet... Those are things that that definitely influence the way that we that we see a place, a person, an object. Um, so, so thinking about social proof is huge. The more you can give someone social proof, the safer they'll feel interacting with you. So that's one idea. FOMO is another one. Interesting. Say if we feel that. yes, if we feel like everyone around us is has has um, seen a certain movie we're going to be more likely to want to see it because we want to participate in talking about that movie and participate in that conversation. And it really taps into this deep tribal um, need to belong and to feel like we are part of a group. There's people like us do things like this. So if people like us are, um, are, are all um, working in a certain type of company mm-hmm. or all, all wearing a certain style of clothing or um, everyone that you know has, uh, has gone to a certain conference that they say you have to go to, those are all, all things that can shape um, how excited we are to want to go to this conference or see this movie um, or, or buy you know, a certain product. Um, so social proof, FOMO, um, those are huge. Storytelling and using... Um, using pricing as a story. That's another great example. Um, you know, a lot of times we think, we think that pricing is this objective thing, but 
we overpay and underpay for things all the time. Someone might be willing to pay for a two-week trip to Thailand, um, but feel like a five-dollar app on on um, the iTunes, you know, the Apple yeah. Apple um, App Store is expensive. Or someone That's might spend true, isn't it? That's right. True. Yeah, yeah. Someone might spend a ton on um, on their at-home gym equipment, but feel like um, a workout video subscription is is too much three dollars subscription to 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 guided workout videos so we spend money in all kinds of different ways beanie babies are a great example of that the the most expensive beanie baby at their height i think was selling for tens of thousands of dollars for a beanie baby uh yes right because people it was a trend and the market said that this thing is worth thousands and thousands of dollars and and in the eyes of collectors, it really was. In that community of collectors where everyone knows each other and everyone is showing off the different Beanie Babies that they own, that is, that's a completely reasonable um, price or value mm-hmm. for, for this object. So, you know, another great example, um, simple human trash cans. Have right. you have you seen them? The, yeah, 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 they, yeah. They're basically the iPhones of trash cans. Right, right, right. Yes. And it's fascinating because they're $200. And some people, if they think about a trash can being $200, they would be offended by that. They would be insulted that a brand had the the gall to, to sell a trash can for that amount of money. And yet there are a passionate, loyal group of, of simple human um, owners that absolutely love their trash cans, me being one of them. I, you can't see it on screen. My simple human is, is to my right here, six feet away from me. Um, and it's so funny because people who come over will see my, my trash can and say, oh my gosh, you have a simple human? I have one too. I love it. Seriously. Wow, yeah. that's brand loyalty for you. Exactly. And you, so you, it's so fascinating because you know, to some people, it might seem totally absurd. And to other people, it's... It's um, it makes total sense, and um, and it's something that brings a lot of joy and value into people's lives, um, and it speaks to your identity because you think, okay, um, I'm going to rationally defend why I spent this amount of money on a trash can and say that, well, um, according to research, the trash can withholds two hundred twenty thousand steps before it breaks, and the lid <laughs> is has a silent close, so you don't get a thump when the lid closes and it's stainless steel so it'll never rust so i'm giving you all these rational answers but really when it comes down to it i feel good having this beautiful trash can i feel like it says that i'm a lux kind of person that um is friends with other people that that i consider my peers who all have this trash can and so there's all these illogical emotional triggers that that get us to make certain purchases and then retroactively defend them with, with logical features and benefits. Um, but if you're trying to make change, if you're trying to take someone on journeys to say, here's where you are, here's where, where I want to take you and where you want to go, all of these emotional, um, emotional triggers and techniques are in your toolkit. And they should be in your toolkit because you're going to need that to help people see differently and change their minds about um, about whatever it is that that you are presenting to them enough for them to want to take action. Love that. 
Love that, love that, love that. So I want, so I want to change the uh, the, the context slightly because this this is great in an organisation and that kind of thing. We when we talked before, we talked about obviously sometimes if you're a maverick and you want to make your own rules and go in your own direction, all that. Some of the people you have to bring along are those of you who are nearest and dearest to you, as it were. And I know we spoke a little bit about relationships and uh, how you bring those people. So. Um, let's take those kind of concepts like social proof and FOMO and all that. Let's apply that to, okay, I'm in a job right now. I want to start my own business. I've got a young family. How do I, you know, what are some of the things I can maybe bring into the the mix to bring my loved ones along with me? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I want to go back to the idea of deep empathy here and take it even one step further If you're trying to influence a loved one using certain techniques of persuasion, it's easy for that person, if they sniff it out, to think that you're being manipulative. And that's definitely not what you you want to do. And that's definitely not what you want them to think because that erodes trust. And, And when it comes down to it, taking someone on a journey is all about trust. When we talk about social proof and FOMO and and tapping into different emotions, it's about establishing that trust and showing that you understand how this person thinks and feels and what they're worried about, that they're worried about being judged by the people around them, that their concerns are valid and real. So we start with that as a baseline, that we want to establish trust with with our partner, our family, people in our personal lives, our friends. And that is even more important with with people in our personal lives than, than in our professional lives. Mm, of course. So if that trust is so important, how can we see their point of view so much that we don't have to manipulate them or influence them, that we instead acknowledge that their fears and concerns are real? So if you're starting a business and you're quitting your full-time job and your partner is, is concerned that you have two kids and a mortgage and they believe in you a lot, but, but how is a single income household going to change your lifestyle and, and what you can provide for your family? You know, instead of, instead of saying that that's, that's not a legitimate concern or feeling insulted because the person doesn't believe in you enough, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's the first, you know, very, very normal reaction. Instead of thinking of that, what if we, agreed and acknowledged that this is going to be a big change and and it's going to be uncertain that you don't you you don't have all the answers and you can't guarantee that things are going to work out mm. Mm. if you acknowledge that instead of pushing back and immediately giving xyz abc reasons of why their concern is invalid if you just acknowledge that it makes you a lot more credible because the person now feels heard and seen. Right, 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 right. And once they feel heard and seen, then you're operating on a different level of trust and you can start to talk about what are some of the solutions to de-risk your situation. So what are some ways that you can continue, for example, to um, make a little bit of side income by doing something that that you um, know people would pay you for? So maybe working part-time mm-hmm. or... Um, or moonlighting, you know, working a different job, 
um, or um, taking over some of the, the household duties that you're currently outsourcing and hiring out. So cutting down some of your expenses. You can talk about all of those solutions and brainstorm solutions after the person feels seen and heard. If they don't feel seen and heard, you can talk yourself until you're blue in the face. And that's what most of us do. And we think that more facts, more logic, smarter arguments, sharper arguments are going to convince the person that there's some tipping point that once I layer on enough smart arguments, you're going to be like, oh, great, Wes. Yeah, it was really that hundredth and seventh um, argument that really made me see your point of view. And that's just not the way it works. People want to feel like they are being seen and heard, that you are acknowledging that whatever they're saying is valid instead of constantly trying to swat down and 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 um, negate their objections. If you just say, you know what, your objection is totally real. That's totally real. And that's something that I'm kind of worried about too, to be honest. And I think this is still worth doing though, because here's why. And here are, the th- here are the ways that I'm going to take personal responsibility for making sure that all of these areas of risk that we just identified are less riskier than, than they appear now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A, huge, a huge thing that, that, that we tend to do is identify these risks and then say, okay, here's what you can do. <laughs> my partner. So can you do this a little bit more? Or can you help out a little bit more with this? Or you know what, if, if you only did this more then we would be able to um, reduce that risk. So all of these things are putting more work on the other person's plate. Mm. And think about it. If someone is putting more work on your plate, you're not going to want to sign on for this. Everyone's already overworked and underpaid already or under underappreciated already. Um, in, in our personal lives. And so, so why, why on earth would they sign on to, to take on more risk and then be the one to blame because you just assigned them five different tasks of how they should be able to support you? No, we, that's just not allowed. We need to say, here's, here's how I'm going to do things differently. Here's how I'm going to be the one to blame if things go wrong. Here's how I'm going to fix it. Here's a contingency plan. Here's how I've thought about this thoroughly. And once you show someone that you're willing to take on the entire ownership of this idea, this project, this endeavor, that you're not just going to blame them when things go wrong, they are going to be a lot more likely to see your way and to to want to take the next step with you. Right, right. I love that. And I love how you just kind of broke it right down. Um kind of one one area I just want to kind of pick up on um, as a kind of a, I think something that's quite big behind the kind of psychology of being able to influence someone is, you know, a, a lot of people, especially if they're just starting out a business or if they're a freelancer, but you know, they're kind of, maybe they want to make a change is that confidence piece. So for some people it's like naturally, yes, I'm passionate and all that kind of stuff. And I just, you know, but for some people it's like actually i'm a little bit shy i'm a little bit um you know i don't have that natural kind of fs or i'm an introvert or whatever else how do you how have you kind of seen people kind of be able to generate some energy when maybe they're not extroverted or you know not so confident or that kind of thing this one hits very close to home because i checked off most of the boxes 
that you just described. No. So introvert, um, not confident necessarily all the time, imposter syndrome, definitely feel that. So that's, that's something that I think a lot of us deal with, but we think that everyone else doesn't deal with. Right. Absolutely. absolutely and right. right. And so I think, I think progress is, is a really big piece of reminding yourself that, that you have forward motion and you're chipping away at this big goal and that progress can be very encouraging for our own confidence. Mm. And a lot of that, you know, going back to the beginning with what we were talking about with drawing a bigger box, there are going to be times in your career, in your life, when, when you want to sprint, mm-hmm. when you're feeling good, you're feeling ready, you're, you're ready to jump into something that you know is, is the deep end of the pool, and you're, you're willing to work super hard. And those are times of, of sprints. So if you think of your, your career as a staircase, sprinting is really that vertical climb. You're going, you're going vertically upwards. And then you have periods when you are on that horizontal piece of that staircase. So that's a little bit more of a plateau. And plateaus are times where you can cruise, feel good about your work, feel like you know what you're doing. You're operating on solid ground. Because when you're sprinting, and that could be coming up, you know, in the next month or the next year, when you're climbing vertically, you don't ever feel like you know what you're doing. You feel like you're stumbling forward instead of putting one step in, in front of the other. And that, and that can be very unsettling on your self-confidence. Mm-hmm. So thinking about stages in your career, periods in your career where you're ready to sprint for a bit, and then you're ready to coast and cruise for a bit to get your footing and feel good, and then work up enough confidence to sprint again. And, and it's that staircase upwards yeah. that, that really helps your confidence because you see that those times where you were sprinting, you survived, you made it out alive, you didn't die, you're still here. And then the times when you're on the plateau, you're, you're great at what you do. People, people see it, they recognize it, you feel good about it, you feel confident about the value that you're adding. Um, and, and by, by interchanging those two things, when you zoom out to the 30,000 foot level and you look back on your year, on your past five years, on your decade, you can really see the progress that you've made Mm. and how far you've come. So I, I love the idea of thinking about sprints and using that as a measure of progress. Love that. Love that. Love that. I just have two more questions just before we, we wrap up. So uh, one, of the, one of the questions I want to ask you is, I know in our conversations, one of the phrases that I've really heard you use a few times, which I absolutely love, is Trojan horsing your idea. So tell us a little bit about, that's really stuck with me. So tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that and how you can use that concept. Mm-hmm. The idea of Trojan right. Trojan horsing your idea came from a conversation that I had with a CEO of, of uh, a multinational company. And he was saying that it was hard for him to introduce new ideas in a way where his executive team and his board would feel comfortable completely moving forward. And this was shocking to me because I thought, Okay, if you're at the top of the food chain in an organization, you're the CEO, and you feel like it's hard to get buy-in and enrollment from the people around you, what hope do any of us have, really? 
right? right? Um, and and we were talking about this idea of Trojan horsing, and and he loved it because he was saying that you know a lot of times in bigger organizations, especially, there's an immune system mm. that that is at play, where a new idea coming in feels like something that is going to threaten um, threaten the organization and the way that things are and the status quo and the equilibrium of yep. how things are going. And if your if your idea is new, um, you know we we tend to think of ourselves as open minded people, but new can either be the worst thing someone tells you or the best thing, mm-hmm. depending on the circumstances. It can feel like it's fraught with risk. Um, and so the idea of Trojan horsing your project or your idea, your your newness is that you're putting a, an outer shell around it. You're putting a wrapper around this new idea so that it bypasses that immune system of the organization. Yep. And that outer shell looks like something that everyone says that they want to do that is already in your yearly goals that aligns with how this is going to make the company more money and how it's going to save the company money and appealing to, to, um, to profit and revenue and all the things that that companies care about. So your idea underneath that, inside that Trojan horse, it could be about changing culture, for example. But when you bring up changing culture without that wrapper, people say they care, but you know, when you ask them to spend money on it, they think, oh, we love this idea, now is not the right time. Or right. we love this idea, but we don't have the budget for this right now. Right. And it's like, okay, that's weird because you have the budget to spend, you know, $50,000 on this new software system. And you also have the budget to hire 10 new people last week. Um, so weird that you don't have the budget for this $10,000 workshop or whatever it might be. And that's, that's, you know, that makes sense because that idea is too, um, it's too threatening for, for the existing status quo. And it's, it doesn't appeal to, um, to how this idea is defensible enough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W- within the powers that be um, of why they should spend this money with you. But if you put your idea within a Trojan horse and you talk about culture in terms of how this is going to increase productivity mm-hmm. and how it's going to make employees more efficient and you bring in numbers about how, because the current culture doesn't allow um allow team members to debate and you're on average spending an extra two weeks every time you're launching a new campaign, arguing back and forth and then making last minute changes that then roll out to the copywriters, the designers, the supply chain managers and costing the company half a million dollars a year. All of a sudden culture becomes a lot more important (laughs) because of this Trojan horse wrapper that that you put around it. So that's the idea of Trojan horsing your ideas. It's, it's not just thinking, okay, my idea um, should be valid on its own as this naked idea, but it's instead thinking about how can I put a shell or a wrapper or Trojan horse around it so that when everyone sees it, they think, great, this is exactly what we need. This is, this is a gift, and I'm glad that someone brought this up because this is going to save us money and time. It's going to make us more productive, which is all the things that this organization says that they care about. Right, 
Right. I love that. I love that. Um, and I can think of many ways that that can be used as well, but that's a further discussion. Um, so last but not least, Wes, people want to find out about you, what you're up to in the world and kind of your, uh, your thoughts and your thought leadership, that kind of thing. Where can people find out more about you? I blog twice a week at westko.com, so they can subscribe there. And I send out tools, tips, frameworks, all about um, persuasion, influence, marketing, sales, the different tools that you need as a scrappy um, change agent to do the, the best work that you can do. I love that. Love that. And have already subscribed myself. And actually, one of, there was a, a, an article I think you just written fairly recently called something like that, something about don't talk about, don't talk to me about your values. Show me your budget. Which is yes. like, it's like the the hard numbers. Talk about Trojan horsing. The hard numbers show what people care about, right? And exactly. Love that. Love that. Wes Ko, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your wisdom, your insight, and your generosity uh, with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. And there you go, Mavericks. That was Where's Ko, and uh, we will look forward to seeing you for the next Mavericks podcast. Bye for now. So, what did you take away from this podcast? I think for me, there are a number of things that stood out. The first was that as a change agent, a leader, an entrepreneur, whatever flavor of maverick you are, sooner or later you're going to have to bring people along on the journey with you. Sales and selling skills are actually really important in that. The second thing though is that although there are many techniques and tools around persuasion and influence, and Wes mentioned several of them like social proof, fear of missing out, and storytelling, this is actually really about deep empathy and being able to really understand where the other person is coming from and what's important to them third takeaway for me which is probably the hugest one is really about bringing your loved ones along with you and it's really about validating their concerns and helping them to feel seen and heard and only then kind of getting into problem solving and kind of the practical stuff but ultimately speaking of course this is all about establishing and building trust and that's true whether that's your family whether that's people who work with you or whether that's customers but I'm really curious, what are you taking from this podcast and what action are you going to take as a result? Head on over to the podcast page at maverick'sunlimited.com forward slash podcast and leave a comment and let us know what you're going to do. Finally, if you're a maverick, an entrepreneur or a leader who really is keen to live life on your own terms and make your own rules, be sure to head over to Mavericks Unlimited and sign up for a free ebook. It's called Superpowers Aren't Just for Superheroes. It's all about how to create life on your own terms using your signature strengths. With that, thanks for listening in and we'll see you on the next podcast. Bye for now.